0: to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Psalm 73. It's actually, for those that are interested, it's actually... If you're familiar, um, the book of Psalms is actually broken up into five books, and Psalm 73 is the first of book number three. So that's where we'll be starting, that's what we'll be reading from this morning. And so as you turn there, imagine a high school or college student who comes to his father and he says, Dad... Why do I even try in school? Why do I even study hard? You know, because I have other classmates and they don't even study. They, they don't even care about their schoolwork. But they're so popular and they have so many friends and they have so much fun. Uh, sometimes I myself, I find myself wanting to be like them. I envy them. And then the father says, son, I, I understand you might feel that way now, but later on, you will see that studying hard and developing responsibility can help you great, greatly in, in uh, down the road in your life. And there's, you see, you got to see, son, there's so much more to life than just high school or college. Uh, those students who are skipping class and who are trying to have all the fun that they can in this time are probably going to one day look back and think, what a waste, what a waste of time that was. So I use that illustration, and I want to point out, I want to throw out a little disclaimer. This is just an illustration to prove a point. I'm not saying that high school or college is the end-all, be-all, but that there's just a general trend, that when one is responsible in that stage of their lives, they tend to be also responsible later in their lives. So it may not seem in the moment like giving up the high school or the college experience is worth it in the moment, but ultimately that that college experience that the world refers to produces no fruit in the end. So I think this concept is easy for us to grasp, but maybe we might struggle with it when it comes to the spiritual life. In the same way, just like that student can wonder, is it really worth it? Or maybe envious of other students who seem to be having a better time, in the same way, we can wonder, what is the use of godliness? What do we say when we survey the world around us and see how so many that are enemies of God seem to prosper and seem to have very comfortable lives? Is there any benefit in trusting in God? And so read with me Psalm 73. Asaph, being led by God's Holy Spirit, is going to speak to this, as we'll see this morning. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Lord, as we've read your word, and we've read the only source of truth, of true and pure and honest truth, we pray that you would guide the words from my mouth and help all of our hearts, Lord, to receive what is from you, to receive it gladly and with joy in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've read, Asaph is he's addressing a contradiction, what seems to be a contradiction between God being good to Israel, God being good to his people, and yet the fact that God's enemies seem to prosper. For those of us who may have thought, Why do I even try to honor God when those around me, when God's enemies don't honor him, don't give it two seconds of their time, and they seem to prosper more than God's own people? They just go about without a care in the world, it seems like. They do what is right in their own eyes, and it doesn't seem to slow them down at all. The Lord addresses these ideas through Asaph in this psalm, as we just read. And so let's look at it. So we've read it, and let's look at it and see what ought we to take away from this poem, really. So Asaph starts out by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to his own people. And so if you're familiar with the psalms enough, if you're familiar with especially how Asaph writes, who Asaph was a basically a music leader in the temple, uh, who was commissioned by David. And if you're familiar with his Psalms, you see he, a lot of times he'll present kind of his conclusion right up front, and then he'll walk you through how he got to that place of his conclusion. So he states his conclusion and then he's going to show us how he arrived there. How did he, how did he get there? It's kind of like if you're familiar with the movie Titanic, right? I think many of us are, right? If you see in the beginning of the movie, Rose, the main character, is kind of advanced in years and you kind of see the conclusion of her life, but then really the other 16 hours of the movie is, um, is showing, however long it was, is showing how she got to that point, right? That's the rest of the movie when she was younger and how she got to that point. So Asaph shares the conclusions of his, of his thoughts right up front. He tells us, truly, God is good to Israel. I know this. I know God is good to those who are pure in heart. But he says he almost lost sight of it all. He knows this to be true, but he almost forgot this fact. What made Asaph, what made his steps to nearly slip, as he says in verse 2? But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. slipped. He says I was envious of the arrogant. Or your translation might say foolish. I was envious of the foolish. So he saw the wicked. And I hope we understand the wicked does not just mean sinner. Because everybody is sinful. That's not what the Bible says when it says wicked. It means those who reject God. Those who scoff at God and who shake their fist at God. Those who deny perhaps even God exists. That's the wicked in biblical terms. So he envies them. He's almost wishing he could trade places with them because they seem, to, they seem to have it all and have it so easy. But why is this? Why, why does he envy them? He got distracted and he forgot something very significant, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 3. For I was envious of the wicked or envious of the arrogant or the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we know if you've been in the world more than 5 seconds you know that the world will at times prosper perhaps many times it might seem like it may seem as if god is kind of letting them off the hook right for no consequences for their ungodliness he just lets it it might seem like he lets it go why lord do you let the wicked go free while your own people suffer night and day Persecution or various many other plights. So that's kind of his introduction, right, to this poem. Now, verses 4 through 14, we're going to see, keep in mind, the Psalms, it's poetry. So there's a lot of repetition, there's a lot of those kinds of literary elements, a lot of imagery in the text. And so in these verses, as we'll see, Asaph laments over. The seemingly silver platter that is handed to those who, to those who reject the one true God. Some of these points that are raised are exaggerations, of course, uh, but being led by the Holy Spirit, but they may seem legitimate at times. And I just say exaggeration in the sense of poetry, right? We we see this all throughout Scripture, uh, hyperbole, so to speak. So in verse 4, as now he's going to lament over the good life that the wicked seem to have. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So this means that they're, they're well fed. They don't go hungry like some of the rest of us, right? Their, their needs are provided for, it seems like. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So this is the Hebrew repetition. Asaph is basically saying the same thing two times in different ways. And so, but they're not, they don't have difficulty in life like we seem to have. You know, the wicked, the foolish, they're, they're famous movie stars. They're famous professional athletes. They live in Hollywood mansions, right? They have it all. They, they live the good life, the lap of luxury, right? If they have an issue in life, it's just simply taken care of because all their, they have everything that they need. Yet God's people at times seem to have, have to hurdle every single roadblock imaginable in life. So Asaph would say. And the wicked know this. That's what Asaph's going to say next. They know this. They know that they have it easy. And therefore they use it as a, they use it to scoff at God. Verse six. Therefore, because of the wicked having having so much provided for them, it seems like. Therefore, verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So they are proud in their own wickedness, because there seem to be no drawbacks, right? They seem to, to get away with all of their wickedness. And so their pride, they wear it around their neck like a necklace. It's just visible to everyone. They wear it like jewelry. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. What a statement. Their hearts overflow with follies. If you're from, you may be aware that I believe it was John Calvin who, uh, who was a leader in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation said, Our human hearts are like idol factories. Just our, our heart is in the same way it just pumps blood throughout the body, in that same way it just develops idols, just, uh, effortlessly. And so Asaph says here that our hearts, uh, the hearts of the wicked just overflow with foolishness with ways to to practice folly foolishness it's a factory that just creates it and so he's giving such a strong indictment against the heart of those who reject god and if you remember in genesis chapter 6 verse 5 the in the passage leading up to when god uh, says he's going to flood the earth and he calls Noah to build an ark so that he and his family are saved, through it we see perhaps the greatest indictment against the human heart in all of Scripture. The, in Genesis 6.5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And that resonates with what Asaph is saying here. And so in verses 8 and 9, we see, so ASAP says there that their hearts overflow with follies. And so now in verses 8 and 9, we'll see how this plays out. We'll see what it actually looks like in the wicked's life. Verses 8 and 9, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They set their mouths against the heavens, as we'll see even more explicitly in verse 11. But they they make themselves an enemy of heaven. And they speak against heaven, speak against God, and basically say, what are you going to do about it? Verse 10, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Uh, I'm not somebody who reads Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. I don't even read Hebrew again. And so this verse is a little difficult to interpret. It's a little difficult to translate, it seems like, because your translation might have said something totally differently at the end of verse 10. Uh, the New American Standard Bible renders it this way. Uh, and it might be a better rendering based on uh, many other commentators on the text and those that are experts in the language, the New American Standard says, therefore his people return here and abundant waters are drunk by them. So it could just be perhaps reiterating the fact that that they have abundant uh, water. Their needs are, are provided for. This might be a better rendering. Uh, the uncertainty is on the second part of the verse, but either way, it seems like when you look at the beginning of the verse, when it says, therefore his people return here, therefore his people return to them, it seems like Asaph is saying that some people are swayed by the wicked because of their luxury and their bliss. John MacArthur point, uh, puts it this way. He says, those who are speaking on this passage, those who associate with the wicked person drink in everything he declares. So those who associate with those who speak against the heavens, who scoff at God, who speak against the one true Lord, that they might even have influence over them. And then they turn back to them, to the wicked. Now looking in verse 11. we we'll see, this is kind of what it all comes down to. And they say, the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Ultimately, they say, you know what? He's not doing anything about it. Maybe God doesn't even know what I'm doing. He just lets it go. You know, you say that I need to to, uh, submit myself to the one true God, but when I don't, I get away with it. He doesn't do anything about it. In fact, I seem to prosper because I reject Him. You know, if God were really just, you know, so they might say, if God were really just, if he were really hold me if he were if he were really holy, he would strike me dead, right? but he doesn't, so they would say, thus they reveal their lack of fear of the Lord. Uh, we spoke about the fear of the Lord a little bit in adult Bible class last week, and I used one illustration there I'll use a different one now so the the greatest issue with the wicked here in verse 11 is that they demonstrate no fear of God. And again, fear of the Lord is not, as we know, it's not a concept in which someone is afraid of God, like in a kind of shivery, detached way, uh, like fear of walking alone into a dark cave for fear that something's going to jump out at me. It's not that kind of fear, but it's a more reverential awe. A a great respect for respect. It doesn't even really, it doesn't really go far enough in 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 communicating it. But I think that's helpful in, in our understanding. Imagine how one ought to address a judge in a courtroom, right? With a certain kind of reverence, a certain kind of of respect. You address them in a certain way. Yes, Your Honor. Right? It's not the place to treat them as if they're your your younger brother or something. Like, hey, buddy, what's going on? Hey, let's... Nope. No, that is not appropriate. And from an argument, using the argument from the lesser to the greater, if that's true for an earthly judge who's just a man, how more so for the creator of the universe, right? A certain posture. And so let me illustrate a lack of the fear of the Lord that, that I think communicates the idea behind the wicked here in verse 11 of Psalm 73. Imagine, it's kind of like somebody knowingly speeding past the police officer on the road and internally thinking, what are they going to do about it? They're not going to stop me. Watch this. I dare you. Stop me. Right? That's a lack of respect for the law. That's a lack of respect uh, for the one in authority. And so Asaph is rightly asserting that the wicked, that's how they are with God daring him to hold them accountable. Verse 12. So after this, now Asaph kind of summarizes it all for the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So he's summarizing their plight. This this is the wicked. They're at ease. They They abound in riches. They increase in riches. Now verses thirteen and fourteen. Uh, if you look at at these verses, and he says, so now he's he's viewed this his perception, and now he takes a step back and looks at himself. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and washed my hearts in innocence. For all the days long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So now after seeing how the wicked seem to prosper, and how the godly suffer, he seems to feel that it's just useless and a waste of time to honor God because it seems to not profit anything, right? As Asaph would say, I'm in vain. I've kept my heart clean, right? They don't keep their heart clean and they get away with it, right? But I seem to keep my heart clean and yet I'm stricken and rebuked every morning. In verse 15, after saying all of this to himself privately, he says, you know, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he seems to be saying, I've kept this to myself, but this is how I really feel. That the godly suffer and the wicked prosper. And so, but he says, if I would have actually said this to others, it would have discouraged them. And it would have perhaps made them turn away, so I kept it to myself. He said, If I would have said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed uh, the generation of your children. So he seems to be saying, I, I've kept this to myself. Now, verse 16. Here is where we see the turning point. In many Psalms, particularly Asaph's Psalms, the way that he writes, he always kind of, he'll typically lament, and then there's a turning point when he comes back to his senses. Verse 16. but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. So he's seeking to understand it. How can this be? Why is it like this? Why do the wicked prosper, but the godly seem to suffer? Going back to his first verse, his conclusion, how can God be good and let the wicked go free when he seems to watch me like a hawk? Doesn't he see that we experience great pain while his enemies enjoy luxury? Why isn't he doing anything about it? And he's trying to understand this, and he can't. He says it's a wearisome task. Wearisome. He was tired. It was exhausting to him. Now verse 17. So It seemed a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It seemed wearisome until I entered your sanctuary. Regarding this, he's probably speaking of the temple, uh, where you would see God's, see a portrayal of God's majesty and of God's power and his holiness. And he's saying, It seemed wearisome until I discerned their end. And that's where the title comes from for for this morning's sermon. So he was given perspective when he stopped focusing only on the here and now and instead meditated on eternity. That's when he came to his senses. And we you and I would only envy the wicked. We would only envy God's enemies when we are solely focusing on the material. And when we forget about the greater spiritual reality that there is. So in 18, in verses 18 through 20, notice here the contrast between the earlier verses when Asaph speaks of the easy life of the wicked and how they have, they have it all. They live in the lap of, of luxury. But now verses 18 through 20. Because we know the wicked do not live forever. They die too, and then what? Verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Remember how Asaph said earlier in the psalm, right at the beginning, he said, My feet almost stumbled. I almost slipped. But here in verse 18, Asaph says, You set them, the wicked in slippery places. Here we see that the wicked really do slip and fall into destruction. Move down with me now to verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you even if we have keeping a a spiritual mindset and a mindset that is focused on God, not simply on the material, but even if we have nothing in this life, nothing that this life has to offer, is not a life in the presence of God the only life really worth living? Because when you think about it, though the wicked may prosper, when the wicked do suffer, who do they have to turn to? I've often thought that about, about just family members or coworkers or those, you come in contact, or those I come in contact with that are not believers, that are unbelievers, that reject God. I've often thought, I mean, when I'm struggling with something in life, when I have a difficult situation, uh, kind of at a crossroads, the natural response for a Christian is to pray or to seek godly counsel but wow the wicked those who reject god they have no one to turn to greater than themselves like god's people do or they they can turn to god but they refuse to they're on their own and as asaph says even if our bodies perish god is our portion forever in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you remember in Proverbs chapter 15 verse 16, it says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure in turmoil with the treasure. So better it is with a little, better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure in turmoil with, that comes along with the treasure. Now here at the end, verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Again, those who, those who are far from God will perish. They will die just like the rest. And then I asked earlier, and then what comes next? Those who belong to God will be with him in this life and then be even closer to him in the next life. And so if you are listening and you haven't bowed the knee to Christ, know that there is a day of judgment that is coming. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're the captain of your life. You're the captain of your own ship and you will escape God's judgment. In resisting Christ and His work that was done on the cross for your sins and refusing to repent and believe in Him and saying, no, I I will not turn to this one you call God, to this one you call Christ. You will be like a guilty person who commits a heinous crime And they think that they've gotten away with it simply because they have not been arrested yet. But we see all this kind of play out many times uh, here today where someone might commit a great crime and they might think they got away with it simply because they're not being held accountable for it yet. All the while, unbeknownst to them, all the police are doing are just crossing their T's and dotting their I's. You might see where they, they, uh, the guilty person might not think that the police are right behind him, but he goes into a restaurant and he, he throws his cup into the garbage can and the police are right behind him, sneaking behind him to get, the, to get the, the cup and get his DNA, right? And he has no idea that this is going on. But then when that time comes, when he is held accountable, then he knows, wow, they were watching me the whole time. When the time is right, then they close in on him. But in the interim, it can seem like I got away with this. Look at me. Don't be like that person. Turn to Christ today. Turn to him today. Ultimately, ultimately, what is the end of the wicked? Again, hopefully you understand that the wicked does not just simply mean like someone who we think in our heads who's just a sinful person. Everybody's sinful. We're all sinners. But it just means the one who doesn't come to God in faith and repentance and who rejects God and and chooses themselves in their own sin over Christ. If we look at Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15, a very sobering passage to read, but I think it must be read because here we see the ultimate end for those who reject Christ. After Christ's return, this is the great this is judgment day. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you, re- if you have rejected Christ, this does not have to be you. Know that Christ died on the cross so that sinners can be made right with God and that this is the only atonement that is acceptable to God. As Proverbs 14.12 said, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You can be made right with God by placing your faith in Christ seeing that he took the punishment that you and all sinners deserve, God's wrath, God's judgment, and that the Father vindicated the Son by raising him on the third day, on that first Easter morning. God said, I have vindicated my Son, and that is the only payment that I will accept for sin. There's nothing that we could ever do to make up for it on our own. We can never pay that debt back. Turn from yourself and your own sin and turn to Christ brother sister in those times when it seems like the world gets off easily right that the world isn't held accountable by god remember to have an eternal perspective on these things to like asaph to discern their end when we are in the sanctuary of god when we're in god's presence when we are when we have an eternal perspective we ought not to envy the wicked though at times it might, we might feel tempted to do so, because it might seem like they have it easy. But we just read the ultimate end for those who reject Christ. So how foolish on our part would it be to envy those who reject Christ? But right after we read the ultimate end for those who reject Christ, starting in chapter 21 of Revelation, we read the end for those who embrace Christ, for those who are in Christ. Christ. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're sobered reading your word. Lord, we pray that anyone that is here, Lord, who has re- who has not yet come to faith in Your Son, we pray that they would turn to Him now, and that they would seek out someone, Lord, that can, uh, Lord, that can show them Your truth, Lord, that they would seek out You and Your Son and Your Word, Lord, and for those who are who are in Christ, Lord, we pray that we would have a spiritual perspective on those things and and. Let us not be envy of those who reject you, Lord, but to bring the truth to them. In Jesus' name, amen.